Like a key, the truth sets you free only if you use it. That's where we were last week. We're really on part two of a section of scripture. You know, there's a funny thing about keys, though. Keys are really common. I hope that as you use your keys this week, you will allow them to speak truth to you about truth. Think about this. Keys are really common. They're laying around everywhere. We, we see them and talk about them all the time. They're also very precise. You ever notice that a key is stubbornly unbending to your opinion of whether it should work or not? And yet with all these keys around, they often don't help people. How often do you feel like a pirate in a cell whistling to a dog who has the keys you need to unlock your life, but you can't seem to get the dog over, right? Come here, boy. Come on over. That's how life can feel like sometimes. Let me just show you this. Not all keys are created equal. We talked last week about objective truth and subjective truth. So there's different kinds of truth in different situations, but there are also different truths for different seasons. Secondly, keys do you no good if you do not use them. Would you agree it's not enough to hold your keys or believe in what they can do? They must be used. I want you to Look at the book of James for more on this. Putting your faith in action, putting what you say you believe in the truth to actually experience and live out the truth. And thirdly, keys have a strange way of getting lost or misplaced even when you are being careful. We left on a trip to Tahoe uh, a little while ago and I connected, I locked this giant rail that holds my motorcycle on the back of our van, and I locked it in place. And as we got up to our place in Tahoe, we unloaded everything. I went to take it off because it's big and annoying when you're trying to get it all the luggage and gear. And I come to find out I have no key to take this solid steel hitch off of my van. I conveniently left that key sitting on my driveway. Now, this is shocking because in my family, I am what, what's called a keeper of the keys. Ask my kids. I'm kind of like really serious about this. I always know where my keys are. I work really hard at not misplacing the keys. Now, the truth is some of you um, are married or will marry. Uh, if you're a keeper of the keys, you will marry or you are married to a loser of the keys, now, lest I just be, you know, completely out of touch, loser is really too strong of a word, so let me soften it up a little bit, a misplacer of the keys, okay? So you either are a keeper of the keys in your household or you're a misplacer, you know who you are, come on. There's a product called Tile, invest in it for Christmas, it'll save potentially some marriage arguments that aren't really needed. Keys and truth are similar. Man, just try as we might. We sometimes don't have access to the key that we need in the moment that we need. Today we're doing something really bold and really crazy. We are talking about both religion and politics, right? This will be outlawed at Thanksgiving uh, because there's something about religion and politics that brings out the worst in us. But we're going to boldly go into this space because we follow the scriptures. And the scriptures are taking us into both religion and politics in the same verse, verses. We're framing this entire chapter in light of truth. What is truth? 
This is the question that Pilate famously asks of Jesus. And in response, um, he's actually responding to something Jesus stated to him. The very reason he was born, he says, was to bear witness to the truth. I really can't overstate the importance of truth. It offers liberty and justice for all. We have Jesus on trial. Think about this. Truth personified is on trial. The one who will, who will return to judge the entire world is on trial. This has gone on for centuries. And those running the trial and offering their definitive verdicts fall into the category of literally those who wouldn't know truth if it were staring them in the face. This is what's happening in Luke chapter 23. Now a quick word of caution. It's easy to dismiss these as ancient, unsophisticated people. Here's my exhortation to you. Don't look down on them because they were born in a different century. Consider the fact that Rome was one of the most dominant societies the world has ever seen. The people in this text, the characters in this text, are the smart, accomplished politicians who have risen to be the influencers of their day. Truth isn't only revealed in dialogue, though, right? It's not the banter back and forth uh, between people and discussion about truth. It's also seen in our actions. In Luke 23, we see humanity at its worst. I described the leaders last week. Corruption, cowardice, duplicity, hatred, deception. But But in Luke 23, we also see humanity at its absolute best. I hope that this week and next, you will marvel that you will fall down in worship as you see Jesus on the way to the cross, full of humility full of restraint, full of dignity, full of strength. Jesus both speaks up at injustice and he remains silent in the face of injustice. Why? Quite simply because Jesus is helpful, not just truthful. That's where we sort of left things last week, that that we would seek to be people full of grace and truth. That means that we're helpful, not just truthful. A couple lost their child, and it was completely unexpected. It was out of the blue. A woman heard about this couple's loss and said, I know exactly how you feel. My dog died too. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Put yourself in this person's shoes. How would you respond to that? What is true in this moment? Are there both objective truths and subjective truths going on? The man took a deep breath, put his hand on her shoulder, and asked this question, what was the name of your dog? He realized that pain is pain and loss is loss. There's a powerful witness to truth about a God who cares for us in our pain. This man could have spoken all kinds of truth in that moment, but he had the grace to see her subjective truth, the reality that she also was hurting from loss, and he viewed it as an opportunity to apply the timeless objective truth about a God who cares. This is an example of someone being helpful, not just truthful. I would submit to you that you are not loving your neighbor as yourself until you get to step two. If you're just thinking about being truthful without any consideration of being helpful, you are not living the way Jesus called you to and empowers you to do. 
So liberty and justice for all. This is what we are looking at in part two this morning. Luke chapter 23, if you're not there, get there digitally, get there old school, however you want to get there, we'll be looking at the scriptures. You know, liberty and justice for all did not originate with with America, nor has it been perfected in America. Only truth allows for freedom and justice to occur. So Luke's been showing us, very end of 22 to the end of 23, four courtroom scenes. And by way of review, um, here's last week. Last week was the Jewish Sanhedrin, also known as the council. This is something like the local superior court. Needing the help of Rome to crucify, the Jewish leaders craft a narrative that will serve their purposes. They've already proven to be men who are willfully opposed to the truth. So the fact that their accusations don't line up with reality does not concern them at all. So it's on to the state Supreme Court. Who's that? That's Pilate. Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. The Jews start to get frantic, and then they slip up by mentioning Galilee. Today, we're going to look at the final two courts before he goes to the cross, the court of Herod and the court of public opinion. So Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 6, this is now Jesus before Herod, which would be something like the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. All right, hit pause. Here's Jesus on trial before Herod. He's sent to Herod. Pilate says, let this become his problem. Think about this. If Jesus had served Pilate's agenda, rest assured, Pilate would have kept Jesus for himself. Pilate is pulling a Judas. How did Judas treat Jesus? As long as the Jesus stock was up and to the right, he kept Jesus. He hung on to him. The moment he sees a dip, sell, 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 get rid of Jesus. This is what Pilate did. He seized the opportunity to say, someone else's problem. What an interesting courtroom scene this is. You have Herod. Herod is clearly large and in charge, right? It's very obvious who's in charge of this. This is the same Herod, by the way, who killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist was calling out his unlawful marriage, Those pesky prophets, right? They're always telling us the truth that are really uncomfortable. 
By the way, if you're feeling bad about family dysfunction this time of Thanksgiving, I know that the holidays, in all seriousness, brings up a lot of hurt, brings up a lot of past regret. It brings up longing for how things could be. But if you're ever feeling bad about, you know, sort of your family dysfunction, here's what I would encourage you to do. Study the Herodian lineage. Just just start studying the Herods in the Bible. This is Herod Antipas. He's the youngest son of the uh, mistakenly named Herod the Great. Who is Herod the Great? He's the one who ruled when Jesus was born. He's the one that authored the policy to kill all Jewish male babies under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. This is a family that is wicked, dark-loving, and truth-denying. It runs in this family. So you have Herod in the courtroom. You also have the council. The Jewish leaders are like little yapping chihuahuas. This is the local lower court. They're sort of acting the part of court gesture in terms of the truth. Dancing around, causing a scene, loud, urgent, demonstrative. They are committed to kill Jesus at all costs. Finally, you have Jesus. He's held in contempt, not of the court, but by the court, which is pretending to bring about liberty and justice for all who deserve it. Jesus is mocked and made fun of in Herod's court. He's dressed down in accusation. He's dressed up in mock adulation. Now, after Herod has his fun, remember, there's no Netflix back in the day. There's no national park system where they can go entertain themselves. So this is big news. Jesus is here. Let's have some fun with him. After the fun is over, they send him back to Pilate. Pilate reiterates, and Luke takes great pains to notate this for us. The man is innocent. He's he's free of all charges by their estimation. He's been examined and found not guilty. Herod has the same conclusion. Uh, even a broken clock is right two times a day, right? If you're going digital, you don't know what I mean, but look at an old analog clock or a watch face. It's right two times a day. Wicked rulers can make an accurate assessment of the truth. Then Pilate does something really curious at the end of this passage, unless you remember that he's a politician. He says that he'll punish and release Jesus. Huh? Why, why would he do that? He just said he's not guilty of any of the charges. He's not guilty of death, but I'll still punish him. Kids, this is something like this. Your parents find out, okay, I see that you weren't lying. You didn't take the cookies off the cookie jar. It's all clear. You're grounded for a week. Then you can get back on with your life. What? Man, my kids would be all about justice in that moment, I can assure you. They would wonder what's going on. You should wonder, what is going on? Why is Pilate doing this? He's just declared him not guilty. He says, I'll punish him and then release him. Here's why. Because he's a politician doing politician-y type things, right? He's acting the part of a politician. What do they do? They compromise. What do they do? Quid pro quo, right? Man, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. Let's, let's form something that will work together. So now it's on to the fourth courtroom scene. And that is the court of public opinion, okay? Verse 18, follow along with me. But they all cried out together. This is the Jewish leaders now. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. 
But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Verse 24, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, that would be Barabbas, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Like a key, the truth sets you free only if you use it, only if you acknowledge it. Pilate didn't acknowledge it. Herod didn't acknowledge what he found. And so they remained trapped in their small kingdom. And Jesus remained with no liberty and no justice. There is no liberty or justice for all because there's no truth to what is being done or what is being decided or what is being granted. Pilate is willing to be and do whatever he needs to be and do to keep power and get to the weekend. Even still, we see in the text that he's torn. He desires to release Jesus a third time. He pleads why and tries to play, let's make a deal. Let's find a compromise here. But ultimately, a power greater than his position or greater than his pen is at work. It's the power of public opinion. The Jewish leaders sense their legal approach is slipping away, so they ramp up the rhetoric. They know that public opinion is a great tool for getting their way. Listen carefully. There will always be a miscarriage of justice where there is no truth, and mob justice doesn't contain the truth. Now that Jesus is back in front of Pilate and about to be released... They reach this fever pit. You see these, these words, urgent, demanding with loud cries, execution by crucifixion. The Jewish leaders have completely abandoned high-sounding high lofty speeches or hiding out in the shadows. They are out for blood and they move in for the kill and they don't care how it looks anymore. I want you to think back on our year. I want you to think back, especially going back to summer. We see this same thing. The court of public opinion holds citizens and its leaders hostage in fear. Paralyzed by fear. The fact that this was a summer before a presidential election made it all the more fascinating to watch the leaders dance around topics with Politico speech. How can we spin this? How can we let it fit the narrative? Think about this. Protests and peaceful demonstrations and rioting are not created equal. Can we agree on that? That's just a truthful statement. That protesting, peaceful demonstrations, and rioting are in different categories. But these were used interchangeably by as far left and right as you want to go. Both sides. These were used interchangeably as far as it fit the usefulness of the party or the candidate being put forward. Wouldn't it be refreshing to have a Jesus-speaking type of candidate where yes equaled, wait for it, yes, 
And where no equaled no. And there was a track record over the course of a lifetime where you said, yeah, I've grown to trust that yes means yes and no means no. Why? Because they act on what they say. Grab hold of these words in verse 23. They're so powerful. And their voices prevailed. Here's a question. What did they win? What did the crowd, stirred up by Jewish leaders, what did they win? Here's what they won. They got their demands granted. What they asked for and willed was handed over to them. They asked for the release of a convicted insurrectionist and murderer. Done. They said, give us Jesus, because we have murderous intent for him. Done. Voices of the crowd proved more powerful than the rule of Rome. Here's a question for you. Are there voices prevailing over good in your life? Love rejoices with the truth. But sometimes a sea of voices that are relentless come at us. And these voices have a way of prevailing for evil over good. You know, many remain bound to the deceits of their day. We have deceits in our day. Leaders that are ruled by their own political interests will eventually give the people what they want instead of what is right. I would say this applies to the home as well, to child rearing. Leaders in the home who are ruled by their own interests will eventually give their children what they want rather than what is right, rather than what they need. Expediency over truth. Self-preservation over justice. Compromise over character. Crouching in the dark instead of walking plainly in the light. Not so among you, church. Don't lead or follow bound to deceit, but instead bind yourself to the truth, whatever the cost may be. Give yourself to the truth. Receive it. Apply it. Cling to it and never ever abandon it. Do you see how many times in the scriptures it says to stand firm in the truth, to guard the trust that's been given to you, to seek after wisdom, to treasure what you have, to keep growing in the knowledge that you already have, to build on it? Why is all that true? It's because it's so easy to lose your keys. With the best of intention, you 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 think you chucked them in the junk drawer. Well, that's a nightmare. Where'd the key go? You thought you labeled it and took such good care, but in the moment of need, it wasn't there to serve you. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Let me try and wrap up these four courtroom scenes and hand you something that I believe is so, so powerful to our daily life. So only in Jesus, who is the truth, remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Only in Jesus can we live free and clear. The phrase free and clear, I think of two things, someone who owns something. I own it free and clear, no more debt. It just was handed to me. Man, what a great picture of the gospel. 
Or I think of someone who's, who's been released from jail, from prison, and they are free and clear of the legal charges that are against you. Man, justice was served, but not at your cost, at someone else. It's a picture of the gospel. Living free and clear is the abundant life that Jesus keeps calling and inviting people into. It is the easy yoke that we can walk in today. I want you to be careful not to stop at knowing this reality and nodding your head in agreement. I pray, church, that you would experience this. Take hold of the truth key, take it out of your pocket, and use it. I didn't put this in your notes. Actually, I did. 1 John 4.16. Circle it, look it up later, and meditate on it every day this week. This verse changed my life a few years ago. It says, So we have come to know and to believe the love of That God has for us. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Why two different terms? Why two different ideas? It's what I just pled with you not to do. Don't just nod your head in agreement. It's not enough to believe in keys. It's not enough to believe that they do open doors. You've got to use it. So we have come. That's a process. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. You wake up tomorrow and you remind yourself, it's what we just sang, you remind yourself, give us the grace, give us the faith to believe the love that God has for us. It'll change your day. Do that over the course of time, it'll change your life. This is truth that seeps from your head into your heart, into your hands, into your feet, and certainly out of your mouth. On your notes, second page, under action items. I've given you two action items. Unless you hold office of some sort or work in a court, your ability to administer liberty and justice for all that's based on the bedrock of truth is located outside of Washington, D.C. or outside of City Hall. So the first action item is this. Take your title, find your people, And get living the truth in your world. Here's what I mean by that. Take your title. If you have kids, you know what the title you have? It's called parent. That's your office. You hold the office of parent, and home is the place you get to administer liberty and justice for all. If you have a business, boss is the office you hold, and the workplace is where liberty and justice can flow. If you have a job, if you have a neighbor, right? Just get your head around this. What are my titles? What is my title? And who are my people? And how can I live out the truth in my world? I think step one is challenging. It's going to take some intentionality. But step two is even more vital. Step two is keep living the truth in your world. There's a difference between saying, I do on your wedding day, and I do every single day for the rest of your life. Big difference. Which part's more important? Maybe the second one. Big deal to say it on one day. I found my title. I found my people. I'm just loving it. I'm loving my neighbors. Walking in the grace of God. 
Well, then tomorrow hit. You're still doing it. So keep living the truth. This second part will require considerable attentiveness and dependence on the Holy Spirit. It will require you to intentionally set aside time daily to keep on course and be clear about true north. We use sailing metaphors around here a lot, which is weird because I don't sail. But just imagine saying, I don't know if I need a daily thing of this. Well, imagine just sailing without daily at least checking in. Am I still heading the same path I should be heading? There are currents and winds that will blow you off course quicker than you can imagine. I read a book last week. It's free on christianaudio.com. They give about a book a month. Great little book called Loving My Actual Neighbor. I actually listened to it. I don't distinguish between the two. God gave me ears and eyes. I do both. It's by Alexandra with a last name I can't pronounce, but it starts with K and it sounds Russian. Here's the question it kind of poses to you. It gives, it's just loaded with great practical advice born from a, a spirit of, of Jesus living. What if my actual neighbors, so proximity matters, right? Neighborhood Bible Church. What if my actual neighbors is where I carried out my primary calling, which is to love God and my neighbor? What if my actual neighbors, <laughs> what if those are my people? What if where God put me matters? We have this passion around here of saying, God, help us to turn strangers into neighbors. Sometimes that starts with just learning their name. That we would turn strangers into neighbors, and by God's grace, that our neighbors would turn into family. Forever family. I want you to imagine that you had a tumor in your brain that required surgery, and that surgery had to go through a part of your brain that lets you speak. You've been warned by the the doctors that this surgery may leave you speechless for the rest of your life. Here's the question. What would you say and who would you talk to leading up to the day of the surgery? For one woman, this wasn't a thought experiment, but it was her reality. Bob Goff, in his book, Dream Big, recounts her story And how he was one of the last people that she talked to. He says he's never found speechless, but he found himself speechless in this moment. That she would want to call call and talk to him. He said this, he said, "I, I figured she would be trying to break the words per day record. But what she told him surprised him. And I quote, honey, I'm being really picky about what I say. When he asked why this was true, she said this, I want the few words I have left to mean more than all the words I've ever said before. She wanted to say beautiful, true things, not just more things. I wonder if we narrowed the scope of our time left and we thought, how can I be helpful, not just truthful? Not just with my mouth, but with every member of my body. Just before we close in some song, I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of Scripture. It will help for you to see it um, in front of you. Um, but this lengthy portion of Scripture is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 
uh, 9. And it takes two groups of people. It's, it's divided by those who live and love the truth and those who don't. So quite simply, you're going to hear two different, two different groups of people. Those who live and love the truth and those who don't live and love the truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. If you're not following along, close your eyes, listen very carefully to this. Here's group one. This man, talking about the Antichrist. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Listen to this. Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Pause. That's group one. Group one is deceived by Satan and on their way to destruction. Group one is condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Group 2, verse 13, very next verse. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy, listen to this, and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when he told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, listen to this. Stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Give yourself to the truth, church. Rejoice in the truth. Keep receiving the truth. Worship and live and speak in the truth. And when you get it wrong, when it's inaccurate, you know what you do? You repent. You've missed the mark. You just lay it before and say, I repent. I receive the forgiveness already offered to me because of the cross. Do you pray with me? Jesus, you prayed to your Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God, we realize that there's a, a, a part of this that's passive for us. It is done to us. There's a sanctifying work, a growing up work that the truth has on us. But God, it's also equally true in Scripture, not at odds but in equal tension, that we are active in this, that we pursue it, that we practice the truth, that our lifestyle uh, sets us apart, not to be different from others, but because we have our eyes on you and you lead us into places that are light and true. God, thank you that you're the one who began this work. Thank you that you call us to walk alongside you with your yoke attached to us. And thank you that you'll be faithful and just to complete 
the work you began in us. In Jesus' name, amen.